Hey everybody, welcome back to the show. We got a string of episodes coming to you this week. This one is the the first one for the week. This is at the Mobile Hunter Expo. It was the panel discussion we had. Um, also, it's up on YouTube Live if you guys want to watch it there. Um, it's with Dan, with Garrett Prawl, DIY Sportsman, Sam Ubel from Chase Nation, and Dieter Cocken from uh, Up in the UP. And they just took on a whole bunch of questions from uh, the the audience there, and also here on uh, a couple of them from here on uh, the YouTube Live show. So you, you guys want to listen to this whole episode? It's about an hour and a half long. I hope you enjoy it, and be looking for more on the way this week. We'll have a whole bunch of them coming up this week. You're tired of spending money on trail cameras you use as tools only to find out they're built like freaking toys? Or you've struggled with unreliable, not-so-dependable cameras or experienced customer service that flat out disappointed you? I've been there. Those problems literally birthed Exodus eight years ago when they shipped their first camera. Exodus had a clear desire to not only build elite products that enabled you to set it and forget it all season long, but also to back them like no other company was willing to with an unmatched level of customer service and support. See for yourself why Exodus has over 15,000 satisfied customers. They've quickly become known for their five-year no BS warranty, quality cameras, and best in-class customer service. You heard that right. Exodus believes in their products so much, every single camera is backed by a five-year warranty that includes theft and accidental damage coverage. Each camera is checked for quality control standards before it leaves their warehouse. They wouldn't use it, you don't get it. Exodus is so confident you'll love your new Exodus camera. They're offering you, the listener of this show, 15% off your next order today. Just use code BTE. If you don't love it, get your money refunded in the first 30 days and just send her back. Exodus really has two excellent cell cam options for uh, all budgets, and they start at just $179 plus your 15% off there. You use the code BTE. They have competitive data plans that allows you to purchase a plan and use the data as you see fit. They want you to be in control. There's no annual commitment and no limit on how many cameras you can run on one plan. You can share cameras with friends, no charge, which makes the Exodus lineup a great option for hunting clubs and leases. There are no additional fees for HD photo requests. That's pretty nice. No additional fees for video uploads. And all cameras share data on a single data plan for easy management. See for yourself why so many have made the switch to Exodus and experienced Exodus difference. Use code BTE to get 15% off your next order today. Now let's talk about Osseo gear. It's a great option for whitetail hunters. They develop a premium line of bow hunting gear that will rival any other clothing on the market in quality. Plus, you got a lifetime warranty on anything you buy from Osseo, which is pretty nice. They have a super unique camo pattern and great technology in their garments to keep you comfortable in the stand. So visit asiogear.com get you some premium hunting clothing. Also, I want to talk about Hunting Beast gear makers of the beast stand and beast sticks in my opinion the best option for a mobile hunter that's looking to pound the public land or just hop around on your private land i don't hardly worry about permanent stands anymore on the uh, few pieces of private i do have i just use that beast stand and sticks and 
I got so good with putting it up, uh, taking it up and down. I really feel comfortable using it in any scenario whatsoever. If you haven't had the experience of getting your hands on a beast stand and trying it out for yourself, go to beastgear.com, get your pre-order in for the stand, order you some sticks, and become more deadly this deer season. Speaking of deadly, got to talk to you about Stealth Outdoors, makers of Stealth Strips, which is a great addition to any beast stand that you're going to buy for beast sticks. It's a great addition for all kinds of stuff. I just put some on my bow the other day. Stealth Strips really are a, a product that any hunter, whether you're a weekend warrior or a guy that hunts almost every day, really needs to take advantage of. Stuff absolutely deadens your your gear uh, to make it essentially uh, noise-free. If you haven't checked out Stealth Strips yet, stop buying all the other crappy alternatives like the hockey tape and any other stuff you're trying to use to silence your gear. Get the good stuff. Get Stealth Strips. Visit StealthOutdoors.com. Pick you up some Stealth Strips. All my partners are linked in the description below. Go check them out. All right, everybody, we're going to start our Q&A panel at the Mobile Hunters Expo, the Northern Show here. Have a great guest of speakers, and y'all are going to hear more about these guys tomorrow on Saturday when they get their special time or do their uh, specific seminars. But as we start to kick this off, kind of want to do a quick introduction here. My name is Jacob Myers with the Southern Outdoorsman Podcast. I am joined here by Josh Talker from the Before the Echo Podcast and then also David Riley from the Fall Podcast. So this is going to be an absolutely great time, uh, really diving deep on these conversations with this a panel full of killers. But as we start to kick off this panel, I'm going to start with Garrett. We're going to do some quick intros here. So for the listeners, the viewers, and the attendees get to know you guys a little bit better. So Garrett, introduce yourself. You know, where are you from, your background when it comes to hunting, maybe even public land, and then we'll kind of start working through everybody, okay? Sounds good. Thanks, Jacob. So my name's Garrett Prawl, and for the most part, I've hunted a majority of public land, occasionally private land, but mostly public for anything, just because it's logistically usually a little bit easier. I'm in the Minneapolis area, but I do a lot of travel hunting. I've hunted North Dakota, Iowa, Missouri, Alabama, Pennsylvania, Georgia, a little bit all over the place, but definitely my bread and butter is kind of that Minnesota and into northern Wisconsin area. Hey everybody, I'm Dan Infault um, from southeastern Wisconsin. That's where um, I've done most of my hunting, where I've killed a lot of big bucks and where most people know me from, but I do travel around quite a bit. Um, I run the Hunting Beast show and uh, I run Hunting Beast gear along with Mario Traficante. about it for me. What do I do to get on consistently on big bucks? Yeah. I hunt them down and kill them. <laughs> <laughs> so for me to get on consistently on big bucks, my thing is to really get close to those bedding areas. It's always been been my key thing. Yeah. How about that? All right, I'm Sam Ubel. I run Chase Nation um, online streaming outdoor show. Um, 
And I'm from Southeast Wisconsin, not too far away from Dan here. Um, I cut my teeth in public land hunting, but really dedicated the last decade or so um, to finding ways onto small acre private. Um, I would say that, you know, my, my niche in, in hunting whitetails has really come down to early season. I probably have you know, 70% of my kills have been in the first week of the season. And that really boils down to uh, a lot of time spent in the summer. Um, I sit a lot of field edges. I tuck into uh, buckthorn, get a lot of slivers and a lot of mosquito bites. Um, but it helps. I do a lot of uh, videography. That's part of running a TV show. Um, and with that is really scouting all the time. So I you know, and, and, and I've known Dan for a long time. And one thing Dan taught me early on was, uh, you know, you scout way more than you hunt. I don't know if there was a specific number to it, but I think it was like scout three, three days to every one day you hunt or something like that. And, and I've, I've never forgotten that. So I kind of live by that. So that's a little bit about me. Hi, Dieter Cocken. I live up in the UP in Houghton, Michigan. So I hunt a lot of big woods up there. There's virtually no ag. So dealing with a lot of browse and a lot of kind of nomadic patterns, but uh, there's still good deer up there. I've been hunting public land since started bow hunting in the late eighties. So I'm getting a little bit older these days, but hunted a lot of different states. I usually try to hunt somewhere early in September and then I'll hunt in Wisconsin and then when I was playing hockey, I actually played professional hockey for 10 years and I was living out east a lot. So I ended up hunting a lot of states out there in Massachusetts, Connecticut, New York. So that kind of just taught me to be as well-rounded as possible to attack a bunch of different scenarios. All right, so everybody's gotten a understanding, at least where these guys come from. Now we're going to learn a little bit more about them. Garrett, I want to start with you. I want to dive into the topic on what has been one of the biggest factors for you when it comes to finding and hunting and killing mature whitetails in your area of the country. Yeah, so I think one of the big keys is that in certain areas, especially if there's a lot of pressure, you can't just assume that there's going to be mature deer around or at least any you know good number of them. And there's been many occasions where I've put maybe too much effort into e-scouting or boot scouting an area that just never really had the caliber of deer that, you know, maybe I was looking for. And so over time, I've learned to kind of spread a little bit wider net and use historical data a lot. Maybe I got a lot of information about a deer. Maybe I didn't hunt him that year, but man, if that deer's still around next year, I kind of know a little bit of what he's doing. And if you have that across, you know, half a dozen, dozen different pieces of property, then that's been the most consistent way for me to at least know if a particular area is worth pursuing in any given year. Dan, what is your thoughts on one of the most important factors for you when it comes to consistent success, finding and targeting mature whitetails? So for me, um, it's really been about finding overlooked spots and uh, reading hunters, other hunters and uh, finding spots where people don't go a lot. And, uh, you know, you can shoot uh, nice bucks consistently in good spots, the kind you, you know, hear about on TV or 
reading magazines, but in pressured areas to shoot mature bucks year after year, you really got to get into those spots where people don't go because that's what the bucks look for and where they hide. So I'm probably looking at a property and knocking off 90% of it and hunting 10% of it. And that's if I deem it has mature bucks, kind of like Garrett said, there's not big bucks on every property. So you can't just consistently hunt the same property over and over again. You have to consistently be moving around if you're hunting public property. Sam, what is your take on one of the most important factors for you when it comes to finding and targeting mature bucks in your area of the country? Um, I guess uh, for me, um, I do a lot of driving around and um, road road scouting is has worked really well for me. I've got a knack for uh, talking my way into permission pieces, I guess. Uh, I have no fear on hunting small acre private. So when I say small acre, it could be an acre and a half. I mean, um, I always do my homework, though, and find out who neighbors are. Make sure, you know, if I've got a wounded deer walk uh, or run into somebody else's property, um, you know, I've got a way to get in and get it out. Um, that and uh, I scout from outer space quite a bit, you know, on the, on the Internet, just looking at Google Earth uh, and using uh, OnX and uh, and kind of like Dan said, you know, some of the stuff that I can see from the road, I figure if I can see it, other people can see it. If I get permission and, you know, it's private, um, you know, I got a little less concern. Uh, but when I'm looking, you know, at the aerials uh, on the Internet, a lot of times I'm looking for pockets that aren't so visible from uh, from the road. And then it's usually diving into finding out who owns that property. Usually I can find that on uh, on X, and then I get real creative with the internet to figure out how to act, you know, get in touch with whoever that owner is. Um, <laughs> there should be like a whole seminar on that. That would be like a masterclass on creative ways to finding uh, property owners. Um, but that's, that's one thing. And then when it comes to actually boots on the ground, um, when I do hunt public land, I hunt a lot different. I don't hunt tree stands very often. Um, I do on private grounds, but on public, I do a lot of on the ground, like I'm on the ground and I'll walk in. And if I don't like what I see, I'll back out and I'll move on to the next. So I spend a lot of time in the car, like, uh, in North Dakota, I was just in North Dakota and, um, I, I, I probably spent 60% of the time driving around. Um, and I walk in, and, and, and that's open terrain, so it's a lot different than, you know, the hill country of western Wisconsin or like here in Michigan or, you know, most of the upper Midwest where it's a lot of trees and, and whatnot. And, and you got nothing more than shelter belts in the Dakotas, so it's, it's real wide open. But when you get into like these dry cattails and uh, like corn right wherever, you know, cattails, corn and bean meat in North Dakota, you pretty much got a trifecta. And you can walk in real quick and find out if deer have been browsing the area and kind of getting a grasp for if they're bedding in those cattails. There's typical bedding areas in, in like the Dakotas. But just in general, I'm just using that as an example. But if I walk in, even if I've got to walk two miles, if I don't see something that tells me that there's hot sign, that there's deer that are being you know, consistently frequenting the area, I'm backing out and I'll burn a day just driving around looking for the next piece to try tomorrow. So that, that's, that's kind of how I, I work when it comes to public land and, and how I, you know, find big bucks. 
Dieter, the pass it over to you, kind of the same question. What's been a important fact for you or, or detail that you pay attention to to help you consistently stay and find mature bucks in your area of the country in the UP? Anybody who's hunted the UP knows it can be certainly challenging. So the hardest part is actually finding them. So have to end up running a lot of cameras and a lot of times you're just looking for one picture. If you get one picture that the deer actually exists and you can kind of look at the, the general area and make a game plan from there. So trying to get a picture in velvet, then I know kind of where he likes to hang out in the last probably three years all the deer in the UP I've shot have been in late December. And for whatever reason, the bucks seem to return to their velvet areas shortly before they migrate. So I've been targeting acorn flats just outside of the migration zones and the, the yarding areas. And that's where I've been able to find them. And that's kind of, you're basically scouting a year in advance or sometimes two or three years in advance in the spring, if you can find areas with oak leaves that are really crushed and pulverized, that's the areas where the deer are pawned through the deep snow to get at the acorns. So those are areas that I'll target years after when the acorns kind of come back into those areas. And bucks don't seem to enter the migration zones or the yarding areas with their antlers. I don't know what they do, to be honest with you, but you seem to have to stay outside those areas and kind of catch them in a transition but nobody else is hunting in december so get it all to yourself all right hey guys this is dave here from the fall podcast now we're going to start off with garrett here on the end as much as we just heard about you guys talk about success that you guys have to consistently kill bigger deer why don't we talk about one thing that you think that may hold the average guy back on consistently killing big deer in their own home areas. So in the modern age, there's no shortage of content, whether it's podcasts, whether it's videos, whether it's, you know, old historical articles. Um, and so I think a lot of times people, if they don't have a level of experience to match what's being talked about, it's hard to relate always what you hear or see in a video and be able to apply it in the real woods. Um, I can remember even like when we did that Minnesota public land challenge and being able to hunt with guys like you and Warb and they would pick up on stuff that I wouldn't necessarily always pick up on. It's like, okay, well, that's something I can now add to my repertoire. And those are the type of things that are hard to pick up without spending time in the woods and without burning that boot leather. So it's like, as much as we use these tools like e-scouting and like trail cameras and absorb all of the content. I think something that holds a lot of people back is just not necessarily having the experience level to be able to catch up and be able to interpret all of that information and be able to apply it. Yeah, that, that's a great point, Garrett. I, I couldn't agree more because in today's world, there's all the content you want. People can listen to it all, but until they start applying that content to their own situations, it's almost like it would never actually pay off for them. So really good point. Same, same question to you, Dan. What do you think is the one thing that's holding guys back in, in say their home areas of hunting from consistently killing big bucks every year? I think the, one of the main things that's holding people back is they hunt the same spots over and over again. 
Um, I literally hunt a different tree every time I go out. Um, there might be spots I don't hunt for three years. I'm constantly seeking out new spots and I'm seeking out new deer. And those deer catch on to spots uh, more than people think. And um, I'll constantly like break down my hunts and statistically and look at them. And when you look at all the bucks I've killed, when you get into the top like 15 that are all mature bucks, the overall majority of them were shot the very first time I ever sat a spot. But if you look at like uh, my average deer, like when you get into the, like the two or three year olds, those bucks more often were shot in a spot that I hunted before or an average spot or a funnel or the bedding area I hunt over and over again, but not the same year. I tend to try and hunt all the time for mature bucks. But those mature bucks consistently have come from the very first time I went in to hunt a spot. I think they pattern you. They figure out you've been there. They move on. And I think you got to kind of learn to hunt a different way if you're hunting mature bucks, especially in pressured areas. Same thing over to you, Sam. What do you think is the number one thing that keeps guys, let's even say from your area, consistently killing big deer? Yeah, I think it's it's two things that come come to mind and I don't know which one is more important I think the first one is emotional attachment to deer um, trail cameras right now or just locking onto a buck that you scouted a lot of guys um, I don't know what it is this naming convention people have for for deer but thinking a deer is theirs or just getting locked on so hard that they lose sight of the rest of the season and they just devote themselves I mean they just let the days devour their season and they chase this one specific deer um i think the more that you hunt public land from my experience especially hunting on the ground i i kick a lot of deer up and screw things up a lot that's how i learned a lot of my lessons and not having emotional attachment you know i bump a big deer and I, i'm not gonna i'm not gonna spend the rest of my trip chasing that one deer i'm gonna move on um it's just so that's one thing and the, and the other thing is entry and exits um, it kind of piggybacks off what Dan said, but at the end of the day, like, and I, as a guy who hunts a lot of private, especially small acre private, I mean, I don't know to everybody what they think is small, but I think anything under like 40 to even 80 acres is real small because you can burn it out so fast. And a lot of times that comes from not being overly careful or over hunting is your main thing and not being careful about how you get in and out, you know, like in Waukesha County, Southeast Wisconsin, we, it's a lot of lowland, and, uh, and I hunt a ton there. Um, and, and one particular property is 125 acres, and it might sound like a lot of land, but it's long and narrow, so it's very hard to hunt. But I was very successful out there because I utilized the ditches, these ditches that would, they're, they're drainage ditches that were laced throughout. They're old. It wasn't farmed anymore, um, but it had been farmed, and then it was all cattails. So I would literally just put on my knee highs, and I'd walk in the muck, and then I would put up in little tiny trees that were right on the edge of this ditch. So I would never have to leave my ground scent. I was always low so they couldn't see me. And if you think about like what whitetails, what, what does it take to be successful? What's a successful strategy? It's don't be seen, don't be heard, and don't be smelled. So access in and out is really important. I think, I think a lot of people always forget that just because you got out of the woods without you recognizing a deer seeing you or smelling you doesn't mean that they didn't walk over your tracks that night 
And once they do that a couple of times, and if you're hunting the same, like, I don't know how many people hunt the same stand, but a lot of people get married to tree stands. I mean, I used to get married to tree stands. And the reason I don't anymore is literally because of Dan. Um, these conversations go way back when he started the hunting beast. I mean, even before that. Um, and, and you and I, we go back and forth on these topics all the time. Uh, and then he made a believer out of me. And it's true. When you get married to a tree stand, every time you go in and every time you leave, even if you think you're taking a different route back and forth to your truck, you're leaving ground scent. It's just a matter of fact. And the deer will start working their way around you. And I've witnessed it by sharing properties with guys where I can actually see where they're hunting, maybe 150 yards away from me in a different tree and watch deer take the wide angle to get around them just because they won't leave that dang tree stand. So I think married, you know, I, th I think being married to a certain buck, that emotional attachment, you ditch that and then you're more careful about your entry and exit. And, and that's a recipe for, uh, or you're on your way to success or more success. I actually got another question for you, Sam, to piggyback off that. When you talk about the leaving in the evening like that, have you actually, this is something I've been experiencing. I, I see this a lot in the swamps of Michigan. Do you, have you ever seen a deer actually backtrack you at all? So I can say that I haven't really seen deer backtrack me because I don't have any proof of that. But what I do have proof of is going out and putting trail cameras in the woods and then getting pictures, you know, 15 to 30 minutes after I leave the camera. And I mean, that to me, just says they come, their curiosity draws them in and they come snip around. I mean, the gig is up already, you know? Yeah, I, 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 could, I see that same thing often. And it's when every time I see that, say with a trail camera, I can't help but think what happens during the, the night hours. You know, I, all of us are out there hunting and I think that probably happens a ton out there, but... Yeah, next to you, Dieter, what would you say, like up in your home area, let's just, let's make this one specific for the upper peninsula of Michigan. What keeps a guy from consistently killing bucks up there every year? Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. I think a lot of it has to do with confidence. I think if you're confident in what you're doing, you're going to be way more successful because that's going to get you up in the morning. It's going to keep you in the tree. It's going to keep you focused. A lot of guys spend valuable time on their phone when the buck they're after actually walks by. So if you're confident in what you're doing, you're going to be focused. You're going to be on the top of your game. So when you do get an opportunity, you're going to take advantage of it. I think I've always thought that the, the hardest buck to kill in any type of situation is that first one, because once you kill that first one, you just need to recreate that set of circumstances and likely will get the most, the similar result unless you got completely lucky, but usually you did something right and you can learn from your successes and recreate uh, the situations that paid off for you, whether that's, you know, hunting swamps, hunting hills, hunting whatever. I mean, just uh, learn from your success and grow from your failures because there's going to be way more failures. 
Another question I want to get into is dealing with hunting pressure, whether you're hunting public land or private land, especially Sam, I'm very interested in getting your take on smaller pieces of private land. But starting with Garrett, how do you deal with hunting pressure, both from, you know, yourself and hunting specific locations, but also dealing with, you know, people that are also out there in that public land with you? How do you use that to your advantage or how do you deal with that and figuring out how you're going to go target a mature buck when you know there's other guys out there also hunting for a mature buck? Yeah, so one thing I started to do was hunt properties that are bigger instead of 500 acres, 5,000 acres, 10,000 acres. And, and instead of maybe going out of state the first week of September when everybody's out there for a velvet hunt, going two weeks later or something, you got the whole, you know, everything to yourself. Um, and certainly there will still be people out there, but on a per acreage basis, some of those bigger, more spread out, bigger woods properties, the hunter density is definitely not what it is in some of the smaller pieces. And so even if I bump into a guy, it's like, oh, no big deal. Like I, there's other places I can go. And there's enough land out here that if I don't know where to go next, it means I didn't do a very good job of scouting. And so maybe that gives me another opportunity to just keep putting on more miles. But those are two of the bigger things. And it doesn't really help somebody who's in a scenario where they're like, well, this is what I'm hunting. It's a smaller piece. Like my, my solution was to try and avoid that whenever possible and try and find those scenarios where I might be able to get on a deer that I think I'm the only person there. Maybe there's like one other guy who knows about them. Dan, how do you go about using hunting pressure to your advantage or dealing with hunting pressure specifically on public land? So um, I'll hear a lot of people tell me that uh, they'll avoid parking lots that are full of cars. Oh, some of my best spots have main parking lots with dozens of cars in there every time I go. It's not really a matter of how many people hunt a property. What matters to me is, is there a big buck there that I'm after? Number one. And number two, if, it, if there is, there's a spot where those people aren't pressuring it. And it's my job to find that. And uh, it's often that overlooked spot. I mean, I've killed a couple of my biggest bucks right next to parking lots full of cars within a stone's throw from my truck. Just because nobody will hunt next to the parking lot, the whole rest of the woods is full of hunters. So I kind of try to look at the psychological aspect of it, but still look for the terrain that needed to hold that deer and uh, just try to outthink everybody else. But it really, that mindset that everybody has that you can't have other hunters out there, that you gotta find some spot that's vacant of hunters is just false. Um, when I shot um, the Robe Legend buck, um, everybody in town knew about that buck and it was showing itself on a regular basis as rut was starting. And that whole parking lot was full of trucks. I mean, you could hardly get a truck into that parking lot. And when I went out to hunt it, I had to walk past like nine or 10 different people's setups to get to right where that deer moves in daylight. And I ended up shooting it. Um, that pressure didn't bother me at all. And you got to get over that kind of. I, I actually got another question to go off that, Dan, is do you actually, has there ever been an instance, maybe it was the Rome legend book that you just talked about, but where you almost like depend on pressure being in a certain area so you can it, it dictates how you're going to hunt a specific buck like does sometimes pressure work to your benefit because you know when the pressure kicks up the buck you're hunting should move into this kind of bedding area when he feels the pressure yeah there are uh, 
pressure situations that work real well, but there's pressure situations that people think work well that don't too. Like uh, when I used to uh, guide deer back in the early 90s, uh, I used to do a big hunt during opening day of pheasant and we'd sit back. We'd never get the big bucks running. It would all be little stuff. Those big bucks would just make, you know, precision moves. So that pressure movement really never paid off. But what has paid off for me is like you'll get deer bedding in an area and you can kind of bump them one day and hunt them the next and kind of know where they'll go. And uh, I can think of one situation that's paid off for me many times is this big, like if you can imagine a big round bull of cattails with a lake in the middle and the outer, you know, in, a, in an island out there, right, of, of like oaks that's got some good bedding on it. It's probably the best bedding area in the area. But there's also little bedding points all the way around this bowl of cattails, right? So um, I learned that if I took and I walked that bowl of cattails all the way around it, right on the edge where the bedding is, just walk the whole thing. You'd hear some deer run, some you won't hear it run, right? But I'd do that a day or two and then wait a day or two and go hunt that island. And I would see three, four times the deer that I saw if I hunted there you know, just by itself. And uh, you can move them, but I think moving them the same day, mature bucks are smart. I mean, even when you're pushing them, how many times do they get up and just run out of there? Most of the times the big ones are caught sneaking, right? They don't just get up and move from pressure, but they'll relocate, but it'll take like a day or so for them to get over there. They'll just move to someplace else secure for that day and hide out till the next day, you know? Sam, let's move that question over to you. Uh, specifically, I want you to talk about when it comes to hunting pressure, especially when you're talking about smaller permission properties, how do you deal with hunting pressure that you're putting on that property and also the pressure from your neighbors around you? Yeah, I think um, one of the hardest things to do is um, having a big buck on a, on a piece and knowing that you have pressure surrounding you and thinking, okay, well, I got to get in there as early as possible and kill that buck before somebody else does, and then making a move in the wrong conditions. Uh, I've done it so many times, that's why I know it's, it's a really bad idea. So the wind is wrong, just don't go in, as hard as that is. But that's why, I mean, as much so, and this goes hand in hand with the whole conversation that is widely talked about today with respect to public versus private um, and why I kind of transitioned to private land. I put so much effort into finding permission. It's, it's, it's like a second job. So I don't just have one or two pieces that I bounce to and then if, oh, okay, it's bad conditions for both of them, now I'm going to go hit a piece of public. I have so many different pieces that I, I don't get to keep them every year. I just work throughout the summer to get permission on more. And then I've, if the conditions are wrong for one, I move on to the other. But when it comes to, to that, to just to having other, other hunters, you know, putting pressure on property next door and, and relating to a small acre private, it's almost a certainty that if I'm hunting a small piece of private, it's probably a bunch of blocks of private that are small. You know, if it's like a five acre piece, there's probably a bunch of pieces of like five acre pieces surrounding it. And there's at least one or two guys that are hunting it. And the sad truth is there's probably a guy that, you know, watches out his window. That's just the nature of the beast. And, and I think I'd be 
blowing smoke if I didn't say that that's not true because I've, uh, you know, kind of witnessed that throughout my career hunting on uh, on small acre private, especially kind of close to the city. So like in southeast Wisconsin, I'm outside of Milwaukee, but Waukesha County is, is there's still suburbs. The suburbs are great because well, there's a lot of, you know, big woodlots, guys with like two to, and these are big, but these are tiny, right? But for me, you know, two to five, seven acre parcels, if I can get permission on one or two of them, I'm, I'm sitting pretty good. If the conditions are right, how am I going to capitalize on killing that buck uh, when I got neighbors that are hunting the same deer? <laughs> I mean, all it comes down to is hoping that you get the right conditions to get in there early and you take advantage of what your, you know, scouting has told you. I mean, I, I shot my, one of my favorite deer I've killed was just a few years ago. And it's this great big drop time buck. I had hit him in the shoulder, uh, low in the shoulder the year prior. Um, in the second to last day of the season, um, I didn't know if he made it and I found him back again in the summer and I watched him as often as I could. I think I probably spent 13 days tucked into Buckthorn right on the edge of the road, listening to people walk their dogs and ride their bikes behind my back while I was filming these deer come out in velvet. And I got him on like this weird three to four day pattern. Every three to four days he'd show up. Then I went to North Dakota for the opener. And uh, I came back like nine days later and the season was just around the corner in Wisconsin. It starts mid September there. Um, and it was four days before opener. This is, by the way, this is a seven acre tract of land. So it's, it's, a, it's a tiny piece. And there's a hunter right around the corner on the same field, um, which, you know, was no bueno. Uh, so at any rate, um, he showed up on trail camera. I had, you know, cell cameras out um, four days before season opener. And I told my cameraman, I said, man, I, I, I really, really am banking on him not showing up these next few days. And I'm going to do drive-bys. So I did these drive-bys looking from the road um, a couple times. I go back and forth. And I eventually saw him um, the night before opener. And uh, he was feeding right out in front of where my camera was. But I didn't get any pictures of him. And I told, I told my cameraman, I said, tomorrow, I think we're going to kill this deer. And just like clockwork, he came out just like on a string. He walked right by my camera and I killed him about, I don't know, 30 seconds later. Um, and that other guy was hunting right around the corner in the same field. It just comes down to opening day. I mean, I was, I was lucky, you know, but you can't, I mean, I don't know what else you can do when you're hunting small acre private, when you're competing with a bunch of different people that are hunting these little woodlots around you, pressure is pressure. You know, and that's just, that's just the nature of the beast. It's just, you got to kill them before they do. But what you could probably bank on is somebody slipping up and hunting the wrong conditions. But that also might mean that they're going to kick that deer out and he might move on to the next woodlot, you know. I don't know if that answers the question, but I did the best I could. <laughs> deer, let's talk about you when it comes to the UP. How does hunting pressure affect you up there, and how do you deal with hunting pressure or use hunting pressure potentially in that area, or just your overall thoughts when it comes to hunting pressure in the UP, and how does that affect the deer moving up there? So in the UP, it's a little bit unique because you can bait. I've always kind of wished they'd ban baiting, but I kind of think that it helps me just because there's a predictable distance that somebody's going to drag bait in. And if you can just get past that distance, then you're not really going to have to deal with any of the negative effects. And you can 
take advantage of some of the benefits because the, the bait's going to hold does, it's going to hold family groups. And if you're just hunting the transitions outside of how far somebody will actually walk with that bait, you can find where those, those larger bucks are cruising. And another way where I try to get more intel is I typically don't go to my trees well before dark. I use gray light a lot, and that gives me the opportunity when I'm driving, I can see where vehicles are parked. I know where people are hunting. I know where they're baiting. And I can use all that information and decide where I'm going to hunt that morning or where I'm going to go that afternoon with where I know everybody, where everybody else is. And the gray light access, I've found a lot of success more because I'm not really hunting inside bedding areas. I'm hunting more on transitions and I seem to spook way fewer deer and I'm able to get up in my tree plenty of time. I probably end up shooting probably more than half my deer in the morning and a lot of time it's within the first hour that I'm even in the tree and just the fact that you're not spooking the deer gives you a big advantage going into even I, I originally started doing it in ag country but now in in the big woods I've found the the same benefit and part of that was I remember watching whitetail adrenaline shows and they're stalking deer they're doing this I'm like why the heck don't I just do that in the gray light, work my way slow to my tree and, and take advantage of all the intel I can get while I'm actually driving to that location. So we're going to open up to the show floor for any guests here, uh, any attendees that want to ask any specific questions. Uh, is there anybody in the audience right now that would like to step up? We've got Rick here with a microphone. If you got a question, you can step up real quick and ask your question to the panel of guests. I'm going to pick your brain because I'm in the UP as well. What's that distance people are willing to go with the bait? Because they just opened up my whole area to baiting again. Matters how lazy they are. But a lot of it has to do with whether or not they can use a four-wheeler. So you can just, you can track their four-wheeler tracks and get right to their, their bait pile. There's going to be, there's going to be, bait piles from year to year that you're going to find scouting because most people are going to hunt that same spot all the time. If they actually have to walk in, I mean, it's typically a hundred yards. And then <laughs> uh, this would be a side note, but because that, that hundred yards is typically about as far as anyone would carry anything of any amount of weight. And that's kind of a, thing I have for I'm, I'm a state trooper so people will drag a certain thing so far from the road and it's usually about a, a hundred yards so a bait pile is half the weight of what they're normally dragging so that gives you a good idea do we have any other questions in the audience if so just stand up real quick and Rick can get you the microphone Well, you guys are uh, mustering up the courage to come up here. I'll, uh, we have a few people. Oh, go ahead. Are you sure? Okay, he he's next then. Um, these are some questions from uh, the Before the Echo live stream here. We had a couple of good ones, and 
seems like a lot of people are thinking about early season right now, which is not surprising. Um, up north, outdoors, he was wanting to know, and I'm, I'm going to kind of change your question a little bit up north there. He was wanting to know kind of where you guys are going to plan on hunting opener on each of your, your, your states you're going to be hunting in, um, probably just your home state. Uh, if you guys could kind of each of you go through that and kind of why you, you would pick that particular area uh, for a, an opening day sit. Habitat-wise. Yeah, habitat-wise or just yeah. what will be your, your uh, preferred uh, opening day sit? Garrett, you want to go first? Yeah, I mean, I guess it kind of varies a little bit depending on the actual state because if it's like a North Dakota early opener, it's going to be a little bit different than like a Wisconsin or Minnesota opener, which is a few weeks after. Usually what I find when I'm out in one of those western states is that they're actively in that first week transitioning from being bachelored up in ag fields and then moving into public. And you might scout the same piece of public every single day. And every single day you start to find more deer sign. You start to find more acorns starting to hit the ground. And it's a very dynamic environment. And usually what I found to be the best there is if I, you know, spend as much of my time, not necessarily hunting, but just checking for when those things are becoming live I won't have a, an idea necessarily in mind of, oh, I'm going to hunt here. I'll look at what the weather is doing for the next few days, but then I'll just keep checking and I'll throw sits at, at areas that I think could be good. But usually I'm not set up in areas that are on the ag. I might not have access to it, but I know where the deer are going to show up eventually when they start that shift onto acorns. And so if I go into those areas, it seems like there's, it's very common to find early scrape activity. And I've had decent success finding those really like totally fresh scrapes in that first week of September. A lot of times it's close to bedding, but they'll also be on the edges of food sources as well. But if I can get as close as possible, those have been opportunities where I've seen bucks in daylight. And if you're the first person on there and they just showed up, they might not even have a great, you know, feel for the presence that you've put kind of scouting that area. Um, and then with some of the other States, like the Wisconsin, Minnesota States, it's, a little bit more based on historical. I don't have a lot of areas that I hunt where I can glass ag adjacent to public as much. So a lot of times I'm relying on cameras and just, you know, looking up in the trees ahead of season to see what white oaks might be dropping acorns. A lot of times I like to find areas, if I'm going to focus on early season, find areas where there might be isolation. There's, you know, some of the hill country areas, there's acorns everywhere. There can be depending on the year. But if I find an area where maybe it's big woods, I know there's one little ridge top that's loaded with white oaks and the rest of the property is mostly reds, then I'll check that. And you know, if it's a cattail marsh, it's you know, usually a little bit more obvious where you're going to find oaks compared to, you know, if you go on the mainland, that's a little bit more scattered. But if you find bedding close to that little pocket, it's like, okay, well, if I know that those trees are producing this year, that can be a really good opportunity to pick up on. Um, so I might not necessarily have a game plan in mind, but I know what I'm going to check. And once I find something that seems worth throwing a sit at, then that usually dictates what I'm going to do. Dan, what are your thoughts? If you want to know where I'm going to be hunting opening day, ask me about five minutes before I go out hunting. So I'm going to run trail cameras. I'm going to glass. I've already got some really good bedding areas scouted out that I've determined are early season. I'm on to some bucks from last year that uh, were real good bucks that I think I know where they're going to be around opening day. But a lot of it's going to be dictated by the wind. 
a lot of it's going to be what shows up between here and then and what I see. Um, I really get a kick out of the people like I work with and stuff who will tell me, oh, I got this great spot for opening day. And I'm like, how do you know what the wind's going to be? And that's a ways off, you know. So that's really kind of a funny question to answer. But, uh, you know, in general, like um, to go on to what Garrett was saying, a little more detail is like if I got a choice of terrains and it has nothing to do with what I've been seeing on camera, you know, you look at a marsh and you look at the islands of oaks and stuff, and we've got a really good oak crop this year by me. You know, um, those deer are going to be glued to those oaks, and it's going to be real easy to hunt them because they're isolated. But now that's not a good time to go hunt them up in the big woods where it's just solid oaks because they could just be anywhere, you know. So you kind of got to look at the conditions and wait till five minutes before opening day and decide. Yeah, I would say oaks is the uh, is the answer for me too. I particularly look for small oak groves that are close to ag fields. Um, having hunted farm country my entire life, um, while you're going to see bucks and does feed out into the fields, just like you watch uh, two fawns come out and dance around in a hay field, you know, in the evening, right? You know, maybe an hour before sundown. You see the big doe stick her nose out and kind of look around to keep track of them, but she kind of stays to cover. Or maybe she'll come out and then she'll dip back in and take the fawns with her. I see the younger bucks come out and they feed, but I feel like the bigger, older, mature bucks usually stay staged up in the hardwoods and wait till the cover of darkness before they come out. And typically where I'm hunting, it, you know, it's not always the same for everybody, right? But a lot of the spots I hunt, cars are driving by. And so, you know, big buck steps out into the field. They've been doing it all summer, and these people keep stopping their cars to take photos and look at them. So, I mean, all they're doing is educating the deer. So he's going to wait till it's dark. I'm going to take advantage of that, and I'm going to stay inside those woods. That I don't know I, just offhand how far into the woods I'm going to be, but if I got a little oak grove inside of those woods, button up to the egg, that's probably where I'm going to be sitting. And I won't have very far, you know, shooting. I'll probably have shooting inside of 20 yards because of the canopy. And it gets dark awfully early um, when you're hunting in the canopy of the hardwoods, you know, early season. I mean, it just, it just does. And for me, I'm running cameras all the time, so I lose my camera light before shooting time is over. And when I was younger, I would crawl down and, you know, I'd still have some, some daylight left and I'd sneak up to the field edge and see what was out there. You know, that was something I used to do. I think I did a lot more damage than good back then. I learned a lot of lessons from that. So now I just sit till it's dark and I'll stay until it's after shooting time and then I'll pack up my gear and get out. But that's, that's typically how I do it. In Michigan with the October first opener with really no egg. I'm trying to get some more egg spots that I'll target early October, but for the most part, it's all apple trees. If you can find secluded apple trees, if you can look at historical maps where old communities in my area, it's like old mining communities, find those apple trees. And those first two weeks of October is just really great for, for hunting apple trees. In other states, I love that beginning of September going out of state like even to an area you've never been you have no intel you just attack it hard you know even if you kick one up that's 
all the better. You know where he is. You know an area you can concentrate on. They're either going to be in velvet or if you find rubs, they're only a couple days old. So, you know, like it's not like you're hunting old sign. If you find any rubs early September, it's all pretty fresh. He could have rubbed it that day or the day before. So concentrating on rub lines early and then, you know, especially if you go out of state and it's a limited time frame, you have to be aggressive because if you chase your tail all week long trying to find one, you just end up running out of time. So if I usually spend the mornings kind of ground hunting, working slow, trying to get your eyes on one to set up on an evening hunt. And if you're, if you do happen to bump one, then at least, you know, one exists and you have an area you can concentrate on. Yeah. Thank you so much. Uh, thank you so much for the opportunity coming here, sharing this information with us, of course, and a big fan of all of you guys here. And uh, thank you for actually sharing not only with me, but everybody else and bringing more hunters so we can keep the sport alive going forward, which things are kind of getting tough out there, right? So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask this. With the social media now being huge and, you know, you guys sharing all this beautiful information with me and everybody else, I'm seeing more hunters kind of getting closer to where I'm hunting and being more creative about getting to bed area and swap and take and stuff like that. What are the couple? What are the couple of new spot or new strategies that you've been uh, you adapted throughout the last few years that are helping you adjust around everybody else trying to do the same thing as you're doing? Thanks. So, usually when I ask a similar question of guys that I look up to that have taught me a lot and that I try to, you know, emulate or learn from, they are usually the ones who don't care. They're like, I don't worry about it because I know I can still be successful. I've got the experience. I've got the knowledge. I'll be able to figure it out. It's usually the guys who are newer that will see other guys doing the same stuff and then they get, you know, really, you know, bent out of shape or frustrated about it. And so I try to always, you know, think of, of those types of words and like, okay, I need to calm down and, and I can just like, I'll get through it. I'll just continue to scout, continue to find some of those overlooked areas, but guys doing the same thing as you, you know, a good example, a couple of years ago, I was hunting Missouri and we all, you know, kind of went down as a group to hunt the same place. Well, everybody was using, you know, typical hill country tactics to run, hunt this Missouri place and just constantly running into each other. And so it's like, okay, well, obviously if I want to have any chance of success, I got to do something a little bit different than what everybody else is, even if it's not a typical scenario or a typical strategy that you would do that time of year in that type of habitat. Um, so that's the biggest thing for me is, okay, well, like I alluded to earlier, if it's a big property and I find somebody else doing the same thing, it's like, well, maybe I got five other areas that lay out the same and I won't find pressure there. But if it's not that scenario, it's like, okay, well, something's not getting pressured right now. Like Dan had alluded to earlier, I got to find that. So, you know, I, uh, I don't see it a lot, kind of like what Garrett said. I see the pressure going way up in some of the areas that I hunt. Um, and when I see people hunt the same spots in the same way I do, it's usually the exact same tree and they figured it out from a video. I really, when I'm going into a spot fresh, I really don't run into hunters. I, I, I don't. Uh, I think really our crowd, our people, the mobile group, 
is a lot smaller than people think. You know, um, the pressure's there. I mean, a lot of people are getting into this public land pressure and stuff, but I don't see people hunting the way we are. I mean, I go out in these swamps and stuff, and you look at a map, and you're like, you know, there's one spot that I would hunt in this marsh looking at that map. And I'd be willing to bet if Garrett looked at that map, he'd say there's one spot. And we both end up in the same spot. And I can pretty much guarantee if we were both there the first time, there wouldn't be a setup there. You can see for years, nobody has hunted there. But both our eyes would pick that spot out. You know when I see a lot of pressure in the exact same spots? When I do one of those group hunts and group shows, and we take, uh, before the echo, we take, you know, Garrett and a few other people that hunt like us, we all end up in the same trees and the same property when we got 10,000 acres. But amongst the public, I'm not running into anybody doing that. They're just not in my spots hunting the way I hunt. So Dan absolutely nailed that one. Uh, public land. Um, while I'm, I mean, I'm not going to say I don't bring a tree stand along. I, I hunt out of stands on public land too, but I would say 90% of the time I do hunt on my feet on public land. But like I said before, I'm, I'm literally walking in and I'm looking for hot sign. And if it's not there, I'm leaving. And if I find it, I'm setting up on it and it could be different from one day to the next or one property to the next. So, yeah, I mean, as far as mobility, that's, that's your best friend. Um, I'll also say that, uh, you know, and this is something that, Dan, I don't know if you remember, but you used to talk so much about this and it really sunk in. Loose lips sink ships. And I know everybody's heard that before, but dang, I mean, it's, it's kind of like my kids. I take them fishing and I'm a musky fisherman. And um, us musky fishermen, we're competitive as all heck. And, and that's hunting on the water. And when my kids are with me, if we get a big musky follow-up, I inevitably, well, my daughter, less, she's older, but my son, he'll get real excited and start saying, like, that was a huge musky. And he'll look around for other boats, and he'll make sure he says it louder so they hear because he likes that cool factor. You know what I mean? And, and as a younger hunter, I'm 40 now, but when I was getting into hunting and I was, you know, in my teen years and in my 20s, um, I really wanted, I really wanted to try to make something of myself and, and I have no problem admitting that. And part of that, that was when social media kind of became a thing. And I used to say a lot more publicly. I used to be on the online forums and I would open up about things. I would share pictures all the time. And as I got older, I saw how that wasn't exactly helping me. Right. And I have a hunting show, so I'm filming all the dang time. <laughs> and, and one of my biggest regrets is trying to maintain a maintain a semi-live program uh, not just because uh, it's really hard to edit and get stuff out on time but more than anything if i put out my content the year after it's already old news and i and i really i really i, I get a kick out of that thing too so like when people shoot a big buck um on an out-of-state hunt and they don't have plans to go back or even just in on the water musky fishing somebody catches a big musky say it's like a 50 something incher they never, ever want to say even remotely close to the area as if somebody's going to go back and catch that fish on the same spot on the same lake. You know, same thing. The buck's already dead. You can go hunt a same tree I was in, but the, the buck's dead, right? So I guess as long as we're on the topic, you, you brought up social media, I would say to Dan's point that, you know, I heard him say long ago, loose lips sink ships. Why don't we uh, keep our phones in our pockets till the end of the season 
instead of showing everybody all the big ones that you're seeing, you know, and getting on trail camera. Don't ever think that when you send somebody a photo and they tell you they promise they're not going to show anybody or send it, that they won't because they will. And they're going to tell the next person, just promise you don't show it because he'll get really mad. And that'll make its rounds, matter of fact. So, yeah, I mean, that's, that's my take on <laughs> the question. With the increased pressure, I think you just have to... For me, I don't like to hunt around people, so I'll try to get away as much as I can. And a lot of that is using different types of access and identifying areas that just don't really have any parking because, you know, people are not very likely to be going in there. So I've been using, you know, the variety of things with canoes, kayaks, and then now I'm from my T-shirt and my booth, I'm selling e-bikes. So... Last year, I was, I mean, I'd park my truck and I'd drive my bike and I was just driving on the road, but I'd probably drive two, three miles from my truck just so I could access from completely different angles, hide where I'm going. So if somebody sees my truck, I'm nowhere in that area. And then if you have good overlook spots, nobody sees a truck and then they're looking around thinking that somebody's sitting someplace because a lot of, unfortunately, there's a certain percentage of people who just hunt trucks where if they see their park they're going to go in there and look around and they used to fish a lot and if you threw a buoy in the worst spot in the lake you're going to have three guys around you within a half hour so just uh being creative with your access getting a different area because the the deer are there i mean they got to be somewhere so i mean you can identify where other guys are going in what they're doing and just look at it from the perspective of the deer where if, if, if I was being pushed out of this area, where's the next most likely place I'd go? And as a public land hunter, a lot of times you're not going to be able to hunt like the absolute best looking spot on Onyx because everybody else sees the same spot. You have to find secondary locations that are a little bit subtler, but offer everything that the deer want and hopefully don't attract as many other hunters. Anyone out here in the audience have another question? So uh, a lot of you use topography, but in terms of trail camera use, uh, does it uh, change over the summer into early season later? How many cameras at a specific location? How many locations? How do you avoid burning the area because you're checking or are you using remote uh, 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 information that's a very well thought out question that's my dad i told him he wasn't allowed to answer any questions so it was actually a good question for him so so we'll we'll roll with it so i i used quite a number of cameras and i was first trying to hunt bigger properties and terrain that was just kind of more rolling habitat and logging and didn't have a lot of the obvious features that I was used to hunting with more defined terrain types. And so I might take an area and be like, maybe it was a big beaver pond network. And I put out, you know, 10 cameras in certain areas. It was like, well, this could be a good spot. I think this could be a good spot, et cetera. And then I, what I learned after doing that for a while is that like, I could have one camera here and get 90% of the same information. 
and that's much less intrusiveness to be able to check. Some areas have cell service, and I'd be able to, you know, put a cell camera in there, and that'd be even less obtrusive. But even if I didn't have that opportunity, maybe I just let that camera soak. Maybe I go in and check it during the rut, where it's again a little bit less intrusive. But if I had, let's say, ten cameras to put out, and I put them all in one area, it's like I kind of felt like I was putting all my eggs in one basket, and subconsciously I was. I was more driven to spend time in that area because it was what I had the most intel on. But what I've learned now is that if I have one camera in the best spot of that area, and then I have another camera in the best spot of another area, and I have those things spread out over thousands of acres, maybe I'm getting pictures of deer from, you know, totally different herb, herb, herd subgroups. And then I still feel like I can keep the pressure a little bit low. And then I don't feel like I'm as, intrusive into the areas because maybe I get a picture of a deer. Okay. I know he's in this area. Well, I'm not going around checking all these different cameras. I know historically in this area, he'll probably show up here during pre-rut. Like here's where the doe groups are. Here's where the best scrapes historically are. And a lot of times that's where I would have those cameras. So like, he's going to show up here at some point, even if I don't know where he's betting early season, I know he'll, you know, get into this area and he's going to be daylighting. And so I guess that's kind of how I've adapted to hunting with some of the bigger woods areas with respect to cameras. And I've also started putting them generally speaking closer to the road because there's been a lot of times where I got cameras that are so deep in there that it takes me a full day. I got to leave eight 30 in the morning, drive for a couple hours, get back in there and some thick nasty place with deer flies and mosquitoes. And then finally get back in there to check the camera. And it's like, by the time I get back out, it's like, man, I just wasted half the day just to get that camera because it had dead batteries from last season versus if I have them within a reasonable distance of the road, then again, in terms of spreading a wider net within that same day, I can get a lot more intel on a lot more areas spread across a little bit wider area of the, you know, the County or the state. And so it's, it's kind of situation dependent, right? But with the bigger properties and more spread out, that's kind of what I've learned just over the last few years has been a little bit higher odds than trying to just you know totally pepper a place with cameras i think people use trail cameras way too much i think it, it gets to be like a little bit of an addiction and uh, when you talk about like regular trail cameras i think that uh, you kind of got to decide if you're really looking for that trophy buck picture to put on the wall or the head because a lot of people are screwing up their hunts, checking cameras, getting their scent in there and stuff. Um, when I use regular trail cameras, I'm usually getting an inventory for a season. I'm not even going back and checking that thing during season, unless I'm hunting right in the area, then I'll, I'll switch cards right when I'm there. But if you remember what I said earlier in one of the earlier questions about first set, about how the majority of the deer that I've shot that are over five years old have been on that very first time in an area. Well, when you go in and put that camera up, that's your first time. And I can't tell you, you know, how many times when I was younger and I did use cameras, because I mean, you learn this, right, from making mistakes. But I can remember putting out cameras all over the place and there was a real pattern to the pictures I was getting. You'd get a picture the first or second day you put the camera out of this giant buck staring at the camera. And you wouldn't see a deer on that camera again for 30 days. And then you might see him coming in and he's looking. And even if you get that deer coming in in a regular pattern, 
now he knows that area. He knows your scents in there and stuff. And when he is coming and he's sent checking to see if you're there, he's, he's a whole different animal. The, the way to kill mature bucks is to catch them completely off guard, where they have no clue you're there, and they just go about the pattern they always go about. Now, cell cameras are a different animal. Get away with a lot more. Now, you can put those out a lot further in advance. Um, you can try and put them out when it's going to be a huge rainstorm or better yet wind, because I think wind, you know, takes scent out more than rain. And you can put those out and you can leave them there for a long extended period of time if you buy a good camera that has good battery life. Those can be an advantage to show you when a deer is in a certain area, for sure. Now, when I use regular cell cam or regular trail cam cameras to get intel, not to soak them for a year, what I do is I put them back in areas I have no intention of hunting, edge of crop fields, over a scrape and a ridge, that kind of stuff. And that just gives me an inventory because I really don't have to know that there's a deer underneath my tree stand because I've got skill. I know how to scout. I know how to find those deer. I just have to know he lives on the property. So I have to know a big buck is there so I can have a camera at a food source and stuff. And what you got to realize is deer react different to cameras or to human scent, depending on where you put that human scent. You walk into their bedroom, they're going to they're gonna react like, hey, you're here to kill them. But you walk down a trail people walk down all the time, they walk right across it like nothing. I mean, we've all seen it. We're walking down the human access trail into the public land, and the deer just walks across like nothing. Well, they're used to humans there. They, they don't consider that like a sacred spot. Now, crop fields are kind of like that. They might, you know, if it's not someplace somebody walks every day, they're probably not going to have a huge reaction to it. They're going to notice it. It's not going to be as easy as the trail, but you can probably get away with a trail camera there, right? So for me, it's going to be the trail cameras are more about taking inventory, but the cell cameras can be more of a killing tool. So I, I used to use cameras a lot all through the season, and then I found out how expensive batteries really are. And so I used to say uh, when I stopped affording those batteries that I was pulling my cameras after, you know, the season started because I didn't want to muck up the area. I think the reality is I probably just didn't want to afford to buy more uh, batteries. And then as I grew as a hunter and began to learn that the reason I was telling people made more sense. Ever since then, now I use, just like Dan was saying, cameras to get inventory throughout the summer. But I will take that camera out if I'm hunting that piece where I know there's a camera. I already got the inventory. I know what's there now. So it's not serving me any more purpose. Um, and if I don't get out hunting on that, pro that property anytime soon, I'll let the batteries die and I'll go get that thing whenever I make it out. In fact, I just... <laughs> grabbed two cameras out of the woods yesterday. Um, so I got a lot of thorns in my hand today from, from going back in there and they weren't in great condition, but they're still there, thankfully. Um, but that's kind of how I use them. Now you mentioned top topography and I was trying to think as I was waiting to, to, to give you an answer, how I might use that with respect to cameras. And I don't know if I misinterpreted, but the, the truth is I don't use topography at all for my camera placement at all. I, I, I don't. I just put it on food sources in the summertime, and I don't really hunt 
exactly on a food source too much. I mean, sometimes I'll, I'll hunt a field edge, op, field edge opening day. Uh, I'd be lying if I said I didn't. But there's got to be a good reason. Um, you know, I was talking about hunting in oaks that are just inside the timber next to egg fields where I hunt. Um, that's a food source. It's a good spot to put a camera, but I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't plan on hunting there. Um, yeah. Uh, but you know, I work with a camera company. I use cameras all the time, but I just strictly use them in the summertime. And then I guess I, sometimes I'll put them out on scrapes, but I don't hunt scrapes. I'm not a scrape hunter. So for me, that's another way to get inventory. And, and oftentimes that's just to see if there's, and I use a lot of cell cameras. So that just tells me if there's a new buck in town that's out sniffing around and it's a good opportunity if the conditions are right to get in there and try to kill them. Ah. All right, so you said that you use cell cams a decent bit. Do you find deer, do you have certain settings that you set them to um, due to like a signal or a noise that they put off? Uh, and do you find that deer avoid them at all uh, when you don't set them that way? So I, I haven't noticed a lot of deer uh, looking at my cameras, but I set them pretty high. Um, so I guess to be honest with you, I, I, I do have deer look at them sometimes. I think the most important thing for me, and I don't know if this will help any of you guys, but I, my cell cameras also record audio. So there's little audio ports. So an important detail, this is aside from the deer, is put tape over that because, I mean, unless you really want the audio, because ants will make that their home. And the last thing you want is a camera full of ants in your car. Um, so that just happened like a week ago, and that's, that's, that's real. So put tape over those audio ports. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, but no, you know what? Um, I don't know about a setting. I use all Exodus trail cameras. And I don't, there is no setting that I'm aware of that can make it not make a sound, but I haven't really heard them click. I know the sound you're talking about. Some of them like, and I don't want to name drop other brands, but some of my older cameras out there that I've used, used to use do have a click, you know, um, mine are all black. I mean that you don't see like a red lens or anything. There's no flash. I don't really care to get color in the night. You know, I just want to see what the deer looks like. So I, I, I honestly haven't, I haven't noticed too much. But definitely when I put cameras lower, I mean, all it takes is a deer smelling the camera and he's going to come put his nose up to it. Doesn't even have to make a noise, you know. He'll smell it and he'll come or she'll come look at it and sometimes lick it and pose and whatever. Yeah, it's a good question. Probably for me, the most valuable cameras are the ones I never check just because... I'm hunting like five different areas that are 50,000 acres and you're always scouting and you find a spot that looks awesome and you're wondering if that's a good spot. You never end up making it there. And then the following year, you're still at square one. You haven't learned any information about whether it was good or not. So if you leave a camera there and just leave it the whole year and you never make it back there, at least the following year, you have some idea if your intuition that this was a good spot or it wasn't a good spot. You know, you can eliminate spots off the map. Maybe you can add a couple. And then with camera height, there's, de there's definitely a huge advantage to placing them high 
because it doesn't matter what kind of camera it is. They all, every single computer chip, thumb drive has the exact same glue as part of the circuitry. So every camera is going to have a similar smell from one to the next. So if a deer has a negative encounter around a camera at your neighbors, that negative encounter is going to transfer to the cameras on your property. And the less likely they are, or less able they are to get their nose right on top of the camera, you're going to get some benefit from that. Because if you put a camera at head height, you're always going to get a nose picture, whether it's a bear or a deer or whatever. And they're just, they're going to avoid those. I mean, I've seen, I remember sitting in the woods one day and it was the best day ever. It was, there's like four bucks chasing does. It was pure mayhem, probably one of the best sits ever. And I was so, for whatever stupid reason, I should have been more worried about killing the deer, but I was so excited to check my cameras just to see if I got any good pictures of all this mayhem I was seeing and not one picture. So if you're sitting at home on your couch and you take that intel and that intel tells you that it was the worst day ever, when you compare that to what your actual experience was, you can't rely on cameras. I have nothing against cameras. Part of me wishes they would be banned just so I wouldn't have to deal with, with buying batteries and setting them up and checking them and doing all that else. But I, I appreciate the camera companies, so hopefully they can keep selling cameras. But uh, definitely don't rely on them because they're going to give you false hope and false information nonstop. I want to give another opportunity for anyone in the showroom here. If you have any questions, stand up and we'll get Rick you or give Rick the mic and let you discuss your questions. So you guys mentioned earlier, you were talking about avoiding 90% of that property when you're looking at that, or you guys were saying when you're going on to a, a group hunt, a lot of you guys will end up in the same area. What are you guys looking for in those specific scenarios that put you in those situations? That's not necessarily getting you away from the people, but putting all of you more experienced people in those spaces. Like, what are you guys all seeing that's putting you there versus looking at a map and immediately excluding 75% of it and then picking through the rest of 15 and then finally sticking with that final five or 10%. Garrett, before you answer, in addition to his question, he's talking about overlooked spots. In addition to that, how does aerial imagery play a factor, but also boots on, a, on, on the boots on the ground confirming what you think you're finding on aerial imagery? Yeah, so for me, I'm always, as a first pass, I'm always starting on the computer and I'll look at it with aerial imagery, different satellite views, different dates over time, LIDAR, TOPO, like basically any tool that I have available to me. And I'm looking for things that I know might provide some type of edge or some type of bedding. And maybe it's uh, an area that incorporates aspects that I'm familiar with from hunting marshes or hills or river bottoms. And I know that I'm gonna have to check those things when I'm hunting specifically those types of habitat, I almost find like it's harder because it's like, okay, these things are what we've been taught to be obvious to look for bedding and other people will go to the same spots. It's like, okay, maybe there's one, you know, feature of that that's a little bit less obvious, but sets up similarly. Well, maybe that's the one I have to check out too. So I'll have a plan, you know, B, C, D, but if it's in, an area that's a little bit more 
difficult to pick up if it's not defined hills and points and knobs and you know isolated brush leading off of a point into a marsh that you might typically think to look for then i've found that in certain scenarios i almost have to put a really extensive scouting plan in place and i still i'm only looking at 10 percent, but it's 10 percent of you know all of the edge and, and just trying to get rid of the stuff that i know is not likely to have a lot of deer sign or bedding or scrapes or whatever so maybe i find a little bit of a rise off of a swamp edge by looking at lidar that i can't see with topo because it's not high enough resolution or maybe a certain year's aerial imagery the sun is at just the right angle to where it makes a couple trails pop that they didn't pop on a different map or maybe one set of imagery is leaf off and another one is leaf on so i'm still putting together those scouting plans in those types of areas and i'm still walking those and it might take me two three weekends to walk all that stuff that i had pre-mapped but if i was trying to walk everything it's just there's not enough time like it's just too much land so i still start with marking off those areas and i i find like okay of the stuff that i just scouted here are the best things what does that look like looking back at the map would i have been able to identify it did i identify it before or was it just something that i happened upon that was from one key area to another i know there's been areas in some of the in a more rolling hill environment that i did not look for when i was initially e-scouting i found them throughout hunting and in-season scouting during the season and just kind of adapted my strategy that first year towards figuring it out and i ended up getting you know fortunate had success that first year but then i was like you know what like i never would have thought to look for this feature before but now that i know what it looks like where else can i find that and those are the things that other people aren't necessarily looking for i might find like a grouse hunter or something like that but i very rarely run into other bow hunters doing exactly what i'm doing in those types of areas so sometimes it's a little bit of like an oddball experience to find something that you can replicate but in other areas it might just be finding you know that secondary feature that's not the primary one that everybody is looking for because it's textbook That was an extremely good answer, Garrett. I'll just uh, give a little more basic, but I agree with everything he said, but basic as in, like when you're in a marsh or a swamp, we're looking for islands, points coming off the transition. So we're gonna look at that hard edge, whether it's an island, the circle of the marsh or swamp, and we're gonna look for points of the different kinds of timbers that meet and stuff. We're gonna look for ones that point leeward so that the wind goes down them, so they can monitor anything coming from the drier land towards them. Because that's what they like to do, they get to, like to get in a spot where they can sit there and monitor danger coming at them. So they use the terrain, so we're looking a lot at terrain. We get into hill country, it gets really easy because you just, you just mark every leeward ridge, you just marked off you know, 40% of the map there. And then you start looking, well, no, where, where in this 40% do people not go? And, if you see a thermal hub, that's usually a key spot for mature bucks because they can hop around in them and go from point to point and bed in any wind without leaving the area. So if you have a wind switch, so mature bucks will usually end up pulling up in areas like that. So just to get a little more specific on the exact type of terrains, but 
Garrett was pretty much spot on to, to what I think. Oops. Uh, overlooked and hard to get two spots. Um, knock off the majority of other hunters. Hard to get to because depending on you know your own personal mobility, not everybody's in the right shape or has the right equipment to access hard to get to pieces um, or sections of the land. When it comes to public land, uh, I personally am one for adventure, so I use boat access a ton. Whether I got to take a motorboat across a lake, right, in, in say Kansas, or if I'm in uh, North Dakota and I got to take a kayak up a river just to get into some dry cattails and get into a little, you know, landlocked piece that's nestled between, you know, two pieces of private. Or in Wisconsin, I'm always, or in Minnesota, I'm always using rivers, tributaries, and any kind of water access not everybody has the means to do that and i would say you're knocking off the vast majority of other hunters when you're willing to put in that work it's an investment though it means you got to get up earlier you know i pack extra clothes because i usually sweat through them um because you're you know you're you're busting your hump to get back in there and then you got to remember you got to get out again but if you know that you're the you're the crazy one doing that, there's not a lot of other people that are going to be doing it. Otherwise, people wouldn't be so impressed when they see pictures of you with a big buck in your boat, right? I mean, that would be pretty normal. So for me, water access is huge. Um, I always try to get creative when it comes to getting access to public land and the backside where it butts up to private. One of my favorite things in my home area is a marsh that has and I hunt a lot of marshes because I'm from Waukesha County, uh, southeast part of the state of Wisconsin. And some of our marshes there, at least in my neck of the woods, have literally new development where there's neighborhoods that butt up to the backside. And there's oftentimes a river, like the Fox River winds through quite a bit of, of marshes out by me. Um, and so somebody would have to put on waders and then blow out the whole piece just to get to that backside where it butts up against these houses that are brand new development and a lot of those pieces they you know they're like quarter acre parcels and most people in wisconsin like beer so it's usually helpful to offer wine or beer to access the public land a simple knock on the door uh, i used to make a lot of phone calls it's easier to get rejected that way you know and and it's, it's it doesn't take as much time i still do make a ton of phone calls but i do knock on doors now um and I will say that just to be clear, that's not always safe. Um, people, I don't know what it is today, but like, you know, somebody sees somebody at their door, they think you're a salesman or, you know, something's off. So I get a lot of like through the wind, <laughs> through the window, looking through the blinds, peeking out. Um, I don't ever wear camouflage when I'm knocking on doors for access, but that's one way to do it. And not a lot of guys think to do that, right? And everybody's kind of like, low on time we get done with work uh i don't i used to i don't care about scent anymore i just use the wind that's pretty cheap so it works for me um so i don't go home and shower and spray down and get soaking wet with anything to kill my scent i just go from my office when i get done working to the woods and i got little time left to hunt so i do all my asking in advance but a lot of guys that are hunting public are leaving work and they're driving out to the same spots, the same parking lots. And then they think about creative ways to access a different part of the land on foot. Well, I'm doing it on foot a lot of times too, but I'm also doing it from the backside 
from some permission that I got to cross over private to get into the public. Offering labor is huge. My dad taught me early on when I was just a boy, I used to ride on this tractor with this farmer up in Lake Mills area of Wisconsin. Um, and we was right up, his farm went right up against the public land and it was hard to get into this side of the property or that public property. So my dad asked if he could pick rocks or stones out of the field. And so the farmer would drive this big flatbed trailer and I'd ride up on the tractor with the farmer and my dad would follow picking up these rocks and throwing them up onto this trailer. And that was the exchange to get permission to cross his cow pasture to get into the public land. So there's all these different strategies that I think about to get away from the pressured areas. Um, and that's, that's, that's just kind of how I roll. I actually got a question for you, Sam, on the, on the water access. Yeah. Okay. Places that you talked about, maybe you're accessing with a river or whatnot, mm -hmm. just out of curiosity on those particular places, would you like those whitetails in that area to be used to having like the summer crowd? There's a lot of people on that river and then you're just kind of one of them, or do you like being maybe only one or two guys that are actually accessing those areas by water? It's an interesting question. It's, I guess if I'm, um, and I'm, and I'm pretty brutally honest, I never even thought about that, uh, at all. I, honestly, I just think about ways to get into public land and even private land, uh, using water access. It's like, that's, that's like my bread and butter when it comes to white hill hunting. That's kind of like, that's my strong point. Um, I just love the adventure of it. Um, but when it comes to other people, I guess it would be the same thing. Kayakers or canoers would be the same as, uh, you know, in, in our part of the state, the Kettle Moraines is huge, huge public hunting grounds. And there's trails woven throughout, right? And there's guys riding horseback and people going on bird watching tours and on hikes. And, you know, I've got a guy on my film team that hunts a lot of that and he kills big bucks. His whole family does. Public land in the kettles. And they're not afraid to film it and say it. And they're hunting right by these trails where these guys are walking underneath it. So if they're doing that and they're successful, I guess, to be honest with you, the last thing that I'm worried about is other, other people passing on the water. Uh, a lot of times the deer will just be like when I'm going down a river, if a deer is taking a drink or standing by the bank, he may be bound to 50 yards away or if that stop and turn around and look and wait for me to pass. And then I'm sure he just went back where he was. You know what I mean? So, yeah, it's just it's never really been a concern for me. The, the biggest thing to, <laughs> to be concerned with with water access is your own safety. And that's something I didn't take very seriously. And I've been in some pretty uh, precarious situations. Um, so, you know, uh, like hill country in the southeastern part of the state of Minnesota, you have big bluffy terrain that's dropping down into these valleys and these rivers. And you could go out and it's beautiful uh, weather and then it changes for the worse. Uh, then you get big rains and you decide to tough it out and the, the river rises dramatically fast when all the bluffs are flowing down into the river. And suddenly you've got trees rolling down and it's dark and you got to paddle yourself out of there, you know, with a headlight and you're dodging trees that weren't there before, you know. Or maybe the river's too shallow and you can't paddle back out against the current. So you got to think about ways to get your boat out. So maybe you put in at one bridge and you take out at another, which means two cars. You got to buddy up with somebody. 
or a bike. You know, there's all kinds of things to, to, to think about when it comes to that. That's what I'll be talking about tomorrow is accessing and, and all my strategies when it comes to water. That's a, a topic I, I hold pretty dear to my heart. With the first part with the aerial imagery, what I'll do first is go to an area where you're 100% sure what kinds of trees are there. Look at that so that you can take that information. You know what this tree looks like. So when you look at a different area you're not familiar with, you can identify what types of trees you have. I try to use that for apple trees, particularly when they're flowering. If you can find the right time of the year where you know for sure what an apple tree looks like and it has a little bit of white in it, you can look into areas where you haven't been and see if those are apple trees. You can mark them on, you know, Onyx or Spartan Forge, and then you can go scout to see if it's actually what you thought it might be. The other part of the question, which was why would a lot of more experienced hunters end up hunting the same, the same areas on one particular piece of property? I think that goes back to kind of what I said where most of those guys have killed deer in that type of terrain, and they're basically looking to recreate situations where they've previously had success. So if you've never had you know, success, you're less likely to identify those spots compared to if you've shot you know, as many deer as Dan shot in hill country, he can look and he's looking like, okay, I know I've had success in a spot that looked exactly like this. And he's in an area he's never been, but it looks very similar to what he's had success before he's most likely going to go right to that spot. And other hunters who've had similar levels of success are going to identify those same things because they relate back to previous encounters they've had in different areas. And that's kind of how everybody ends up on top of each other in, in some of those situations where those are guys that you'd say supposedly know what they're doing. But <laughs> we're all trying and failing, so you never know. Before we wrap up, does anybody else in the crowd have any other questions y'all want to y'all would like to ask? All right, perfect. Well, gentlemen, we appreciate y'all spending some time with us this evening. Attendees, thank y'all for joining us, and we'll catch y'all back here tomorrow for the second day of the Mobile Hunters Expo.